If you please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 954. 954. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. So last week we started this look at chapter 5, and this is where Paul rebukes the, the Corinthian church for their toleration of sin within their congregation and a failure of the church to exercise church discipline. And in the first eight verses, Paul identifies the type of sin that was tolerated. It was sexual immorality. And it was a kind of sexual immorality that was so heinous that it was not even tolerated among the pagans. And then Paul instructs the church how they are to deal with a person, that he must be removed from fellowship. He must be excommunicated. Verse 5 says that the man is to be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And this was not done to punish this man. This was not done to destroy. It was not done from hatred. It was done in the hope that this drastic step would be able to save his soul, that he would be saved, that he would be restored because of this step. And lastly, Paul showed that the failure to exercise proper church discipline by removing the sinner from the fellowship, not only does it jeopardize this man's eternal soul, but it actually jeopardizes the entire church. See, this sin is not, if it's not clearly dealt with and recognized through church discipline, it can spread throughout the church and bring God's judgment on the entire church. Well, in today's passage, Paul continues this theme of, of the proper nature and the proper scope of church discipline by clarifying instructions that he had given to them in a previous letter uh, to this church. So 1 Corinthians Chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. Here now the word of the Lord. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father, as always, we need your spirit. Lord, I need your spirit to speak your words. And I pray, Father, that I will speak your truth. I will speak your truth in a clear matter. I will speak your truth under the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that we will hear from you. Each one of us, our ears will be opened. And when we have an encounter with your Spirit, we will be compelled to listen. And we will be compelled to change. Change more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. So what is the purpose of the church Specifically, what is the purpose of the church with respect to those who are not in the church? How does the church interact with the world? How do we interact with the unbelieving world? How does the church interact with a culture? A culture that oftentimes, at best, is indifferent to us. And at worst, outright hostile to the things of God. And it's a complex question. It's a question that has been answered differently by different churches and different traditions throughout different ages. And there are two extremes 
that we often see the church taking in answering this question. And the first extreme is the church retreats. It isolates itself from the world. It seeks to protect itself from being polluted by the wicked practices of an evil culture, a culture that is in opposition to the things of God, a culture that often hates God and hates God's people, the church. And this practice of cultural isolation, this can be seen all the way back in the early church in the the monastic movement, where the devout would basically retreat to monasteries and, and convents to live a life of solitude and service and devotion to the Lord away from the sinful world. We see this practice in some Anabaptist traditions, such as the Mennonite and the Amish, who separate themselves and their their communities from the larger society. And many of them live even without the modern conveniences, such as electricity or phones or cars. And I remember when I worked in eastern Pennsylvania, I would see the Amish buggies going down the streets in, in places like Reading or Lancaster County. But it's not just limited to the Amish. It's not just limited to monks. We see this retreatist tendency a lot closer to home, where many of us in this room participate. We see this in the modern evangelical church. We see this in the the parallel Christian ecosystem that, again, many of us in this world, in this I mean, this room participate in. See, there are Christian schools, Christian homeschool networks, Christian sports programs. Christian pop music. I always love Christian pop music. You basically, you take singing to your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you put Jesus in. That's basically the same what Christian pop music is. But we have uh, Christian uh, movies and, and Christian cartoons. Right? I remember my kids grew up on, on Veggie Tales. Even Christian superheroes. Do you remember Bible Man? I don't know if some of you remember. There was Bible Man and he had a sword of the spirit. We have these things. And I can remember, you know, when I take my kids to the, Christian, the local Christian uh, bookstore, there were all kinds of cheesy little Christian toys. You remember the Testaments? There were little mints that you had had a Bible verse on. They were called Testaments. And there was another thing we had, which was an evangel cube, which was like a little puzzle that you can that you can unfold, and it had the gospel story on. We had all we had little balls with got, with, with the Bible verses, tops, and all kinds of little little trinkets that you can get in the Christian bookstore. But this separation that we have, this, this hit home to me about 10 years ago in, in the previous church where I was teaching a high school Sunday school class. And we were talking about evangelisms, evangelism. And the kids, they looked at me and they said that they had no contact with non-Christians. And I looked at kids in my class. They were either homeschooled or they were in Christian schools. They were involved in Christian sports programs, Christian theater programs, lots of church activities. They had no one to evangelize. Everyone they knew was in the church, was a Christian. So this is one extreme that's easy for us to to fall into. The other extreme, again, that's easy for us to fall into, this is the exact opposite. This is, the first extreme was separation from the world. The second extreme is assimilation into the world. And here the difference between the church and the bride of Christ, that is the, the saints that have been redeemed, that have been set apart wholly for Christ. Here this difference has become obscured. It's become practically non-existent. The church and the world have really become indistinguishable from one another. And this problem is not a new problem. It goes all the way back to Genesis. It goes back when the godly line of Seth and the wicked line of Cain intermarried, corrupting the entire world, leading to God's judgment and the flood. And this has been seen throughout the history. If you read your Bible, the history of Israel, they're continually wanting to be like their pagan neighbors. They're continually being tempted to be corrupted. We want a king. We want to be just like everyone else. And this is seen 
throughout church history. The church at first was, was persecuted. It, it, was, it was kept pure because of this persecution, and it spread because of this persecution. But shortly, the church became the official, the, the official church of Rome and, and of much of Europe. And, it was, and even in here in America, even though we don't have an official state church, it's become a dominant force in America. And it, it, even we see a respectability in the church. At one time, being called a Christian man was the same as being called a gentleman. It was being a good person. We see this in the social gospel of the mainline churches, where the church's main purpose is really to make life better here and now, to bring social improvement to the society. And we see it in the politicization of the, uh, of the, uh, the church, where both you have both the religious right and the religious left. And this is, this is the second extreme that the church has taken with respect to the non-Christian culture, basically being the same as the culture, the compromise and assimilation. But there's a really odd thing that we see in many churches, many Christians as well. Many Christians adopt both of these extremes simultaneously. They both retreat from the culture and conform to the culture at the same time. And we see this when our parallel Christian institutions, while externally separate, adopt the same worldview, the same values as their secular counterparts. We see this in the Christian school or college that's just as worldly, just as materialistic as its public school counterpart. We see this when Christian movies and Christian novels display the same moralism, the same man-centered themes as Hollywood movies or New York Times bestsellers. The only difference is that there's no cursing in them and there's no sex scenes in it. But other than that, the worldview is the same. And I think the reason we see both of these extremes simultaneously is because as Christians and as a church, we've got it exactly backwards. We, we've reversed the way that we as the church are to interact with the unbelieving world. And in this brief passage, in these five verses we're looking at today, Paul straightens out our thinking. He reorients us to the proper relationship that ultimately will purify the church, ultimately will redeem the culture, and ultimately brings glory to God. So we're going to go through these five verses one at a time, as, as we regularly do, to see the correct perspective and draw some applications as we go through this text, applications for us today. So Paul starts off correcting the Corinthians' misunderstanding of instructions that Paul had sent in his previous letter. He says in verses 9 and 10, he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. See, Paul starts off with instructions for the Corinthians not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, the words translated here, sexually immoral, is porneia, and we've, I've talked about this many times in, in teaching here. Porneia is a very broad term. It basically means any sexual activity outside of a one-man, one-woman, lifelong marriage. So it, it would include the unlawful sexual relations, the incestuous relationship that's mentioned in verse 1 of this chapter, where the man has, has, has his father's wife. But it could also include fornication. And some of you have an older translation, maybe the, the King James Version. That's how it actually translates here as, as, as fornication. And this is sexual relations between two unmarried persons. And it would include adultery, which is, which is sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse, with a married person who is not your spouse. Or it could include homosexual relations, pornography, 
unbiblical divorce or any sexual activity outside one man and one woman in a lifelong marriage. Now, given this definition of sexual morality, you can see that there are many, many, many people who are going to fall into this category. And I remember just thinking of my 25 years in a secular organization. I worked with homosexuals, adulterers, people who had unbiblical divorces, people who regularly used pornography and were proud of it, people who openly lusted after people who were not their spouse, and they would describe it in more detail than I cared to hear. And if I separated from each of these people, it'd be very difficult for me to do my job. I'd have to basically work in a closet with very little contact with people. And as broad and comprehensive as this one sin is, it's not the only sin Paul here is instructing us not to associate with. He includes the greedy, the swindlers, or the idolaters. And the word translated as greedy could mean covetedness. It's basically dealing with our desires. It's dealing with our motivation. The greedy person covets things that are not his. The greedy person has a desire for more than I have right now. It's a desire for a person is not satisfied with what God has given to him. And, And I really think that we all fall into this category, one level or another. Each one of us wants more than we have now. And we, we also look at this in a positive sense. We see this as ambition. We see this as drive, as being motivated. Again, we see it as a good thing. But often if it's motivated for the wrong things, the Bible calls it a bad thing. The swindler. This is a person who's not satisfied uh, with what he has, and, and he wants to satisfy these unlawful uh, desires or, or these desires with unlawful and unethical ways. This is a thief. This is a liar. This is a cheat. This is the person who will bend the law as much as possible to maximize his own gain. A person who games the system, who will exploit all the loopholes. And, and the person may not actually break the letter of the law, only for fear of getting caught, only for fear of consequences, but will trample on the spirit of the law. I remember a few years ago, I was on a business trip, and I was with one of our top salesmen in our company, and his, the, direct, the sales director for this region. And I remember as I was with them, they were bragging about all the unethical ways and underhanded ways that they had gotten deals. Lying, bribing, cheating. And I was just, I was just disgusted. I couldn't wait to get home. Then we have an idolater. See, an idolater is not just, we might just think of someone who worships a graven image. And we do have some of them here. We have Hindu people who will worship graven images. But it goes much more than that. It's a person who worships anything anything other than the triune God. And if a person's greatest joy, if their greatest satisfaction of the meaningful living, of their motivation for living, if it comes from anything other than God himself, this person is an idolater. And again, this includes pretty much all of us. So if there were a few people that maybe we would be able to come in contact who were not sexually immoral, If you add the greedy, the swindlers, and the idolaters, this is a lot of people that we have to avoid. But Paul explicitly tells us in verse 10, he's not speaking about the sexually immoral. He's not speaking about the greedy, the swindlers, and the idolaters of the world. Those outside, those sinners outside the church. He said, if if you would have to do that, you would need to leave the world. We would need to be monks. We would need to be hermits. This is not what Paul is saying. In fact, doing so, leaving the world, would contradict Jesus' own instructions to the church. Jesus said to the church, Christians are to be salt and light to the world. 
I mean, you know salt. If, if, you're, if you're having a steak and you've got the salt sitting in the shaker, it does no good to your steak if it sits in the shaker. You have to put it on the meat. The same thing as Christians. We have to be on the world. We have to have contact with the world to do any good, to be salt and light. Jesus explicitly said, we are not to hide our light under a bushel. We are to let our light shine so the whole world can see it. The Great Commission. Jesus sends Christians out in the world proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. This cannot happen if we are withdrawn from the world. Jesus himself in his high priestly prayer says, Father, I gave them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus doesn't say to take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. So the complete isolation from the world, the complete withdrawal from the world, where we we have no interactions with non-Christians, this is disobedient to Christ himself. And this response is not a response, is not an option for us. But neither is the opposite extreme. Neither is the assimilation into the world. Neither is it an option for the Christian to embrace the morality and the worldview of this anti-God world system. And this was the fundamental problem that we see in the Corinthian church. This is the whole reason why this letter was written. This is the reason behind, the underlying cause behind the rebukes that Paul gives in this letter. So the command not to associate with these types of sinners listed here, this still stands. But the command does not apply to associating with sinners of the world, with sinners out there. So how does it apply? Well, we see the answer in verse 11, where Paul says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So here we see where where I believe many of us have gotten this relationship backwards. And that is this relationship between the Christian and the world. See, we seek to separate from those out there. We seek to separate from those those wicked sinners out there, all the things that they're doing. We judge those outside the church. We condemn those outside the church. All the while, all the while we embrace the very same sins ourselves and within the church, but we condemn them out there. So we basically become like the self-righteous hypocrites that Jesus talks about, that he condemns in Matthew chapter 23, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! And then Jesus goes on and describes all the ways that they were hypocrites, because they were doing the very things that they condemned. And we are the same. So what Paul tells us in, in verse 11 is that we are not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who practices any of these notorious sins. We are not to associate with a person who claims to be a Christian, who is involved in our fellowship, but lives in a way that is contrary to the teaching of Scripture, and and basically is indistinguishable from an unbeliever. We are not to associate with this person. Again, look at verse 11. Paul expands on this list of of, uh, vices, Right? As if it was not comprehensive enough. Paul adds two additional sins to this list. He adds reviler and drunkard. Or reviler. This is a person who is verbally abusive. This is a person who uses his words or criticisms or insults to harm others. And, and this could be harming just as much as if you're using your fists. And sadly, there are far too many revilers in the church. 
And many of them are pastors and leaders. Drunkard. There's a person who's intoxicated. There's a person who has lost control of his mental and volitional facilities due to being on drugs or alcohol. Again, this person is unable to obey God. And each of these sins mentioned here, all of them, are grievous, and they are not to be tolerated within the church. Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. That's one that kind of gets us sometimes. This is all out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No inheritance. You know what that's saying? It means you're not saved. It means you're not a Christian. If that's the way your life, that's characteristic of your life. And these are hard words. And Paul ends verse 11 with these words that are, we are not even to eat with such a one. So what does this mean? What does it mean we're not to associate with any of these types of sinners and not even supposed to eat with them? Well, it means that these sins are not to be tolerated in the church. They are not to be excused. They are not to be swept under the rug. They are not, we're not to be wishy-washy about them. The church must be clear. The church must be unambiguous in the areas that the Bible calls sin. Where the Bible is clear, the church itself must be clear. And this is why church discipline is so important. And as we saw last week, church discipline, it has a positive component, which is called discipleship. And discipleship is where the church, by faithfully preaching, and faithfully teaching God's word, the church articulates the biblical standard. So there's no doubt. There's no doubt what is ethical. There's no doubt what is required. No one can say, I didn't know. I didn't know that that was wrong. I didn't know the Bible taught that. And this is where I think the, the, the breakdown usually starts. See, churches fail to teach the Bible. They fail to preach against sin. Or they preach about sin that's out there, as opposed to sin here. It's easy. It's easy for me to sit here and preach about all the sins of those outside. And we'll all be going, amen, amen, amen. But once we start talking about the sins in here, we get quiet. We get awful quiet. That's not as easy. And again, I'm sitting with you. I'm talking about myself just as much. Just as much. See, what happens, they fail to, to preach against sexual morality. Maybe because they have sexually active uh, people who are in their singles who are, who are sexually active, they don't want to offend them. Or people who are addicted to porn, they don't want to offend them. They don't preach against non-biblical divorce because they have people who have had non-biblical divorces. They, preach, they fail to preach against homosexuality for fear of being canceled by a culture or, or forbidden from college campuses. And truthfully, I think this is where a lot of the opposition to the PCO, PCA overtures that are coming out. And these overtures are basically trying to clearly articulate the church's stand on same-sex marriage and, and its compatibility, same-sex desires, and its compatibility for leadership in the church. And everyone agrees with it, but they don't want to say it. They're afraid to say it. And I've seen just, just in my own, seeing the people who are in opposition to it, it's people who are in big cities, people who are on college campuses, and it's not that they don't agree with it, but I think they're afraid that this unambiguous statement will have a, a negative effect on their ministries. 
And it probably will. But we need to clearly teach. I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair to the, to the population to say, to, to hide what we believe to try to lure them in. I think we should, be, we should have truth in advertising of what we believe. But it goes more than that. Oftentimes we're afraid to preach against greed. Especially if the greedy uh, member is using his greed and giving it to the church. We're benefiting from that greed. Or conversely, we don't preach about the greed of those who give nothing to the church for fear of sounding self-serving. And I can tell you, there are a large percentage of churchgoers who give nothing to God's work. There are even people here at Northgate who give nothing to God's work. And I tell you, this is sinful. And I don't say this to make people feel guilty and give more money. I say that because each one of us will stand before the Lord and he will hold us responsible for how we have used the resources, even if they're small resources, that he has entrusted to us. And you know what? He will hold me accountable if I don't tell you that because I'm afraid that it's going to sound awkward and you're going to think it's self-serving. We're afraid to preach against revilers. That is those who are verbally abusive because many church leaders, that's the way they are. They're verbally abusive. They're aggressive in their personality. So we're afraid to preach against that. We don't preach against swindlers because many of us are pushing the envelope with our financial dealings and taxes and even the way we handle tax-exempt status. See, we need to be clear what God's standard is, not shy away from boldly proclaiming that standard as it's found in Scripture. Not my own words, what Scripture teaches. And this in itself, I think, will solve the majority of problems that we have because people will know the standards. And once they know the standards, they can govern themselves. But unfortunately, preaching and teaching are not enough. In addition, as a church, we need to hold members accountable to what the Bible teaches to what we profess to believe, to what we have taken a vow, a membership vow to adhere to. And this is where the the negative aspect of church discipline comes in. And as I I laid this out last week, there are three stages of church discipline. And the first is what's called an admonition. And this is basically where the church, it it could be formally, it could be informally, it could be in written, it it could be verbal. Basically, the church informs a person that the behavior that they're doing violates scripture. It's really an extension of discipleship. It's really an extension of teaching and preaching. It's saying that what you're doing violates Scripture. See, where preaching is general, you know, I can sit up here and say any sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful. The admonition is specific. Your sleep with your girlfriend is sinful. Either marry her or stop it or end the relationship. That's specific. And this is the first step. This is the admonition. And if the person repents and the sinful activity stops, the person is restored. The, dis- the, the discipline ends. Even if the person acknowledges the sinfulness but, but hasn't, is working to overcome it and working with people to be held accountable, the discipline ends. We're not expecting perfection. We're just expecting acknowledging and moving forward. However, oftentimes, the person does not refrain. The person does not deny the sin or, or, or denies the sinfulness. Basically tells the church, mind your own business. Then discipleship proceeds to the next level, which is suspension from the sacraments. And again, we talked about this last week. And I think this is a lot of what the statement in, in the end of verse 11 is talking to, not even to eat with this person. And this is referring to the Lord's Supper. This person is to be suspended from the Lord's Supper. And as a side, I, I want to mention something that I, that I didn't talk about last week with respect to church discipline, but I think this is important. See, as Presbyterians, we understand the sinfulness, not only of church members, but also of church leaders. 
This is the, one of the reasons why we have a plurality of elders. We don't trust one person to, to be the way. So I, I don't want you to think that, that church discipline is someone standing up here and saying, you did wrong, you did wrong. Everyone's accountable, including leaders. And, and we, are, we are all seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance. That's the one who we're trying to discern. So that's why we have a plurality of elders. But even in addition to that, there's a balance of power. Uh, there, there's, there's checks and balances. There's an appeal. So say a person is under discipline, but the session is wrong. The whole session could be wrong. There is an appeal where this person could, could appeal to the presbytery or even appeal to the, the, the denomination as a whole, the General Assembly, which is seen through our standing judicial commission, which is kind of like our Supreme Court. So there's multiple levels. I don't want you to think that, that, that there's, there's, there's elders up here and everyone's down here and their word is law. No, everyone is accountable. Everyone's accountable to God's word. So that's the first stage. Oh, I'm sorry, the second stage. The second stage of church discipline. This is the suspension of the sacraments. And if this brings a person to repentance and they cease this sinful behavior, then the person is restored to fellowship. The person is restored to the sacrament. The discipline process ends. However, again, if the person continues the behavior, continues to refuse to repent, then the case goes to the final stage of church discipline, which is excommunication. And that's what is being discussed in this word. In, in this passage. See, excommunication is what is meant by not associating with the persistent sinner. They are to be removed from the fellowship. They are basically to be treated as an unbeliever. Now, this doesn't mean that church members are to shun them, that you can't even talk to them, you can't have anything to do with them. No, not at all. You know, we're free to associate with, with unbelievers. We're free to associate with an excommunicated church member. The difference is that this excommunicated church member is not to be treated as a fellow believer. They are be understood, they are being treated as an unbeliever because their actions and their excommunication and the determination of the church has said these people are, are no longer believers. So this means that they will not have the same type of intimacy, the same type of fellowship that, that exists in the body of Christ. And I think this is really another aspect of this instruction not to eat with them. Because the fellowship meal, this re- reflects a, a, an intimacy and a fellowship between believers. And the excommunication, the excommunicated person is no longer a believer, no longer considered an insider. They are rather an outsider. In fact, they are outs- this, the, the fact that they are outsiders needs to be made clear to them and the church. It's for their soul. And what these verses teach is that we are not to separate physically from unbelievers but we are not to adopt their sinful practices either. And most importantly, these practices are not to be tolerated within Christ's church. And if a person who claims to be a believer acts in a way that's contrary to that profession, then they are to be treated the way they are acting. And this allows the church to be in the world, but not of the world. And as I mentioned, many churches get the teaching of this passage completely backwards by failing to discipline, failing to judge within the church, but rather what they do is they point fingers out to the world, outside the church. They judge the sins of the world. And Paul explicitly repudiates this practice in verse 12, where he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? See, as, as church officers and as individual Christians, God has given us jurisdiction over a particular church, a specific church. God has given the session here at Northgate jurisdiction over the congregation of Northgate. Not over the the church across the street, not the church down the block, certainly not jurisdiction over the world, not jurisdiction over unbelievers. 
See, I can't go down to the mall on, on Sunday morning and start placing people under church discipline because they're shopping and they're not at church. I don't have that authority. The session does not have that authority. No church has that authority. We only have authority over our particular congregation. And that's why church membership is so important, because it clearly distinguishes who is under the authority of the session and who is not. And also for the member, of whom are you under authority of? Now, because we do not have ecclesiastical authority, church authority over unbelievers, just because we cannot exercise church discipline over unbelievers, this does not mean that we have nothing to say to the world. It doesn't mean that the world is not under judgment. The first part of verse 13 says, God judges those outside. And the people outside the church are still accountable to God. They are still subject to his authority. They can't say, you know, I'm not in the church. I don't believe your Bible, so it doesn't apply to me. When they violate God's law, they are accountable to God. They will answer to God. And the thing is, every person, believer or unbeliever, will face God's perfect justice and judgment for violating his law. Every sin, every single transgression will be perfectly and justly punished. For the believer, it's punished on the cross in Christ. For the unbeliever, it's punished in himself. In himself. People can't say, I didn't know God's law. Because he has written his law on our hearts. That's what Romans 2.15 says. And the bad news is, the really horrible news is that every single sin, even the smallest sin, is against an infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, infinitely perfect God. And because of this, even the smallest violation of his law demands infinite punishment. You hear that? Even the smallest demands infinite punishment. Now, many people say, Get out of here. I don't believe that at all. How could that be fair? Even a smallest sin deserves an eternity in hell? That's not fair at all. And many people don't like this fact. I don't like this fact. But you know what? Us liking it doesn't change the fact. Scripture teaches it. The prophet Isaiah, we read from Isaiah this morning. One of the most righteous men alive during his time. He had a vision of God's holiness. And he knew when he saw God's holiness that he was doomed. His famous famous, uh, uh, verse Isaiah 6, 5, where Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he knew, he knew that he was undone. Even he was the best of the best, he was still undone in God's sight. And what we need, one thing that really helped me understand, because still some of you may be wrestling, it says it doesn't seem fair. Uh, eternity in hell for, for just a minor sin for someone who, who seems like a really good person? And this helped me understand it. Think if you had a, had a friend ask you to do something for you. And, you know, say, mow my lawn. And, and you don't have time. You say, I'm sorry, I can't do it. There's no consequences. You don't owe anything to your friend. You don't have to mow his lawn. But what if your job was to cut grass? That was your job. And you had your boss and say, go cut that grass. You say, well, I don't really feel like doing it. What's going to happen? You're going to get fired. You see, the consequence was a lot higher because you owed more obedience to your boss than you do to your friend. What about the government? What if the government tells you to do something? What if you get a subpoena to say you need to show up at court? You say, I don't want to do that. What's going to happen? They're going to come after you. They can throw you in jail. There's certain things that you could do violating the government that they can actually take your life. 
You see, you owe more allegiance to the government than you do to your employer, than you do to your friend. Now think about God. God we owe infinite to. He is our creator. He is the creator of all there is. We owe him infinite obedience. Matthew 10, 25, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, the government. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, we have so much greater, same offense, because of who it is against has a greater consequence, depending on who, we have a greater obligation, greater punishment. And there's God, we have an infinite amount. He is the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's God himself. So this is the judgment that the entire world faces. This is the fate for every single person who is outside of Christ. It is an eternity of torment of hell, separated from all that is good, all that is kind, all that is loving. Separation from the, from the favorable presence of God, subject only to the wrath of God. This is the reality. And you want the really bad news is, if that wasn't bad enough, the really bad news is for the unbeliever, there's not a single thing that he or she can do to change this fate. Not a single thing he can do on his own to change this fate. This is the path that every single unbeliever is on, and it is horrible. It is a horrible, horrible path. But this is where the church comes in. This is why we are to remain in the world and not to retreat. This is why we are not to compromise. See, we have to be in the world, but we have to be distinct from the world. Like salt cannot lose its saltiness. It has to be distinct from the food that it is preserving. This is where the church comes in. We have a specific ministry, a ministry to the unbelieving world. See, the church has a prophetic ministry to the world. We are to proclaim the judgment of God. That's the bad news. And we are to proclaim the gospel of grace, which is the good news. We are declared the bad news of judgment and the wonderful, wonderful news of the gospel of grace. The Apostle Peter, in his letter to us as ex elect exiles, those who are in the world but not of the world, Peter tells us we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We have a purpose. And it's the purpose is that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. My friends, this is our purpose. We are to proclaim the word of God. We are to proclaim the excellencies of God. We are to proclaim the bad news. The bad news that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. But we are also to proclaim the good news. We're to proclaim that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're to proclaim that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We are to proclaim that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And this is our only hope. This is the only hope for the world. This is the news that we are to proclaim the world. Our only hope. The unbeliever's only hope is to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, all for the glory of God alone, as proclaimed by the inerrant word of God alone. And the only way, the only way we can be of any blessing to the unbelieving world is not by judging them, but by proclaiming the gospel. The only way we can be a blessing to the church is by making disciples and faithfully proclaiming God's standard as found in his word and holding each of them accountable to this word. 
And this involves, as Paul tells us at the end of this chapter, we are to purge the evil one from among us. Let's pray. Father, we are frightened when we see just the, the, the seriousness of your word, the seriousness of the task that we are called to. Lord, you have put us in this world for a purpose. And Lord, each one of us, each one of us who is saved, each one of us who by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a new creation. There is only one reason why you have not brought us to glory. It would be much better for us. It would be much better. We would be away from this body of death and sin in this fallen world. And we would be in the joys of heaven. But you've kept us here to proclaim the gospel to those who have not yet embraced it. So, Father, we pray. We pray, Lord, that you give us the courage. You give us the courage to proclaim that word. Give us the the, the courage not to judge those outside. They don't need judgment. They're under judgment already. They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the escape, the way of escape, but also to hold each other accountable. Lord, there are sadly many people who think they are believers who are living no differently than anyone outside. They are deceiving themselves. They are making the church look bad, and they are bringing all of us under judgment. So, Father, we pray that we will have wisdom to know the difference and the courage to call them out and to to do church discipline as necessary, but the compassion to restore, the compassion that Christ had to restore them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.